The church is at its best when it's fully, fully engaged in culture. Not partially engaged. The church is at its best when it's fully engaged in culture. Jesus gave a number of parables, a number of metaphors to describe this. He said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's one of the smallest of the the seed. But when it's put into the ground, when it's put into the soil, it becomes one of the largest of the garden plants. In other words, the church is, is at its best when the seed is interacting with the soil. The church engaged in culture. He said the kingdom of God is like yeast and it works its way through the batch of dough. It transforms everything but for it to have that kind of um, impact the yeast needs to interact with the dough. He said to his followers you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. To have impact the, the salt needs to act, interact with that which it needs to disinfect, right? The light needs to interact with the darkness. The church needs to engage in culture. And I want to start with a story that totally inspired me of how when the Spirit of God fills people, no matter how bleak the situation might be, hope can arise and culture can be transformed. So this is a story of Ernest Gordon, who was a British officer captured by the Japanese in World War II. I want to read you an extract from a book. So Ernest Gordon was put to work building the Burma-Siam Railway through the thick Thai jungle for a potential invasion of India. The Japanese hated those who were willing to surrender rather than die, and their treatment of the soldiers was appalling. Prisoners were beaten to death if they appeared to be lagging. They worked in 120-degree conditions, and eventually 80,000 men died building the ill-fated railroad. Gordon himself got sick and almost died. The prison camp was a case study of survival of the fittest. People fought, attacked, and schemed for the most meager of provisions. Selfishness and hate were the ethos of the camp. Then one day, something shifted. One of the returning work crews was missing a shovel. The Japanese guard began screaming that if it was not returned, he would begin shooting the prisoners. All die, all die, the guard shouted. Tension blanketed the group. He lifted his rifle to shoot, and one man stepped forward and confessed, I did it! The guard brutally beat him to death in front of the group. Later that evening, it was discovered in a fresh inventory of the tools that simply miscounted. This act of selfish love transformed the ethos of the camp. One of the prisoners remembered Jesus' words, No greater love has any man than this that he lay down his life for his friends. That truth lived and demonstrated began to shake the camp. Gordon recalls, Death was still with us, no doubt about that, but we were slowly being freed from its destructive grip. We were seeing for ourselves the sharp contrast between forces that made for life and death. Selfishness, hatred, envy, jealousy, greed, self-indulgence, laziness, and pride were anti-life. Love, heroism, self-sacrifice, sympathy, mercy, integrity, and creative faith, on the other hand, were the essence of life, turning mere existence into living in its truest sense. These were the gifts of God to men. True, there was hatred, but there was also love. There was death, but there was also life. God had not left us. He was with us, calling us to live the divine life of fellowship. Yancey, the author, goes on to explain how the kingdom of God began to break out in the camp. And in the midst of the hell of war, the beauty of heaven shone through. They started pooling the gifts and talents of the prisoners together to form a jungle university. Gordon taught philosophy and ethics. The university soon offered courses in history, philosophy, economics, maths, natural sciences, and at least nine languages, including Latin, Greek, Russian, and Sanskrit. 
They built a church as a sacred place for worship. They made their own paint and started a gallery with showings. They made instruments and performed Mozart, ballets, and musical theater. And when they were eventually released, they treated the guards who had tortured and brutalized them with kindness and compassion. Yancey concludes the story with these words. Perhaps something like this was what Jesus had in mind when he turned again and again to his favorite topic, the kingdom of God. It's like a mustard seed. It's like yeast. It's like salt. Tiny, but the impact is remarkable. In the soil of this violent, disordered world, an alternative community may take root. It lives in hope of a day of liberation. In the meantime, it aligns itself with another world, not just spreading rumors, but planting settlements in advance of that coming reign. The church is at its best when it's fully, fully engaged in culture, not just spreading rumors, planting settlements of that coming rain, creating colonies of heaven. Don't you love that story that in the darkness of a prison of war camp, suddenly inspired by the spirit as an act of worship to God, they create this university where people can flourish. That is a picture of what it means to be church. And that is what God is calling us to. Um, In one of my favorite books by Andy Crouch, um, a book called Culture Making, he basically says there's five postures that you can see throughout the last 2,000 years of church history that the church has had towards the culture. And he would argue that there are moments where each of these postures is appropriate. Number one, condemning culture. That's what Barr and Bonhoeff were, were doing during the Nazi regime. Number two, critiquing culture, highlighting the injustice, the depravity, and some of the mindsets that surround us. Number three, copying culture. Number four, consuming culture, the best of the culture around us. But he argues, and I fully agree, that the best way to transform culture is to create culture. That's what they were doing in this prison of war camp, creating colonies of heaven. And this afternoon, we're going to look at how do we create kingdom culture in a city like this. I want to start with why, why this is important. Um, Tim Keller, an uh, American pastor from New York, basically says that when a church doesn't have an underlying theological vision, it will always bend to pragmatism. It will always lean towards pragmatism. In other words, when you don't know the underlying theological framework, the theological vision, um, you'll begin to make compromises. You'll begin to redefine success as the world defines success. That a successful church is a large church, a powerful church, a church with huge resources. Um, It will be incremental, but over time you begin to make compromises when you don't have a theological vision. And without the theological vision, we lean towards pragmatism. We will do whatever it takes to get where we want to go. So the question is, what is our theological vision at KXE? What's the foundation on which we are building? Now, we know the vision statement, hopefully, to serve God's purposes, to make all things new in this amazing city and far beyond. What's the theological framework for that vision? Now, many of you will have heard this. If you've been at KXE for any length of time, you'll have heard this. Um, Rather than dialing out, because some of this content will be familiar. I want to encourage you to dial in, to lean in. Repetition is an incredible tool for learning. For those that haven't heard it before, lean especially in, um, because we want everyone to be operating from the same hymn sheet, building on the same foundations. There's kind of three, three levels to this theological framework. Here's the first level. This is the story that we belong to. 
This is the, the, the wider narrative of Scripture. It starts in a garden, the Garden of Eden. As God creates humanity in his image and likeness, places them in this garden of perfection, this garden of abundance. There's no sin, no sickness, no suffering in this part of the, the story. Humanity fully alive in relationship with God, in relationship with one another, and relationship with the world around. And God gives humanity, Adam and Eve, this task to extend Eden to rule and subdue over the wilderness that surrounds the garden. So to extend Eden until Eden fills the whole earth, and then the whole earth will be filled with the blessing of God, the presence of God, the glory of God. That's an amazing beginning to the story, right? That's what we were made for. But then sin enters the story, and created order begins to unravel. That's called decreation. Now, Martin Luther, the brilliant Reformation theologian, defined sin as a life turned in on itself. So you were made to live upwards to God in worship and outwards towards one another. Sin forces you to turn in on yourself. And it becomes about your needs, your goals, your longings, your desires. It's all about you. Look after number one. If it feels good for you, do it. It's essentially saying to God, not your will be done. We want our will to be done. And as sin enters the story, created order unravels. Violence begins to enter the story. So Cain kills his brother Abel, and then you have the story of the escalation of violence. And then you hit this absolute low point in Genesis chapter 6, where it says the earth was filled with violence, and God's heart was filled with pain. Just take that in. The earth was filled with violence. Not, not just a little bit like saturated with violence. If you know the beginning of the story, the whole plan would be that the earth would be filled with the blessing and the glory of God. And and six chapters in, it's filled with violence and God's heart is filled with pain. That's the low point, if you like. And in Genesis 12, we have a hinge moment as God basically says, okay, I'm going to put in motion a plan to redeem, restore, and recreate. Restore what's gone wrong. And he says to a guy called Abraham, you're going to be a dad. I know you're really old, but you're going to be a dad, a father to a nation. And that nation, Israel, is going to be a vehicle of healing, restoration, and redemption to the ends of the earth. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, you you know that Israel made the same mistake that Adam and Eve made. They basically say, God, not your will be done. We want our will to be done. They turn their back on God. But if you've read those chapters about Abraham, the very end of the story in Revelation 21 and 22, it shouldn't surprise you, right? How does the story end in Revelation 21 and 22, the very, very end of this incredible book? The story ends with God coming down and making his dwelling place with humanity on earth. So anyone that grew up with this idea that you're going to die one day um, and and you're going to leave your body behind, but your soul will ascend to some sort of disembodied bliss where you chill out with the angels and you drink Red Bull and you play harps. That's a really fun idea. It's just not Christianity. It's actually Greek philosophy. The end of our story is far more glorious. Um, Essentially, God comes down and heaven and earth become one. And as heaven and earth become one, everything that surrounds us experiences healing. Suddenly, the Apostle John is writing down this vision and says, there's no death, there's no grief, there's no crying, there's no pain. That sounds a lot like Eden, right? When there is no sin, no sickness, no suffering, humanity fully alive in relationship with God. And then you have this climactic moment. As God sits down on his throne... And says, behold, I'm making all things new. Now let me nerd out for one moment. In the Greek language that the New Testament's written in, you've got two words for new. You've got neos, which means brand new. You've got kainos, which is something old that's made new. It's restored to its former glory. And when God sits down on his throne and looks out at creation, he says, behold, I'm making all things kainos. 
I'm restoring everything to how it was in the beginning so that humanity can be alive in a relationship with me, alive in relationship with one another, and alive in the relationship with the earth that I made and love. Like God's on a mission to make all things new. This is a glorious story, right? And the end of the story is glorious. Thomas Merton said, your life is shaped by the end you live for. This is the end we're living for. The redemption of all things. The renewal of all things. And the story you live in is the story you live out. And we live in a city that's bombarding you with alternative stories. Are you going to live in this story? Because if you live in this story and if you live out this story, you're going to be an agent of kingdom redemption in London and far beyond. That's exciting, right? I feel like I'm getting excited and not feeling much in the room, but I'm just going to crack on. Um, Here's the second level then. This story is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Our story is Christ-centered and cross-centered. Christ-centered and cross-centered. How does God fulfill the story? And the answer is he takes on human flesh. God becomes man in the person of Jesus. The word incarnation comes from a Greek word incarnate, literally means in flesh. God in flesh. This is the seed interacting with the soil. This is the yeast interacting with the dough. Thanks so much for some water. There we go. Made all the difference. This is the yeast interacting with the dough. This is the salt interacting with something that needs to be disinfected. So Jesus spends his time with drug addicts and tax collectors and prostitutes and adulterers and lepers, all of those that were pushed out to the margins of society. And he steps in and interacts and establishes his kingdom amongst them. That's amazing. And then all of the sin that led to created order unraveling, all of that sin is loaded upon Jesus at the cross. He dies for us in our place. And at the cross, he triumphs over sin, over evil, over darkness, over oppression, over death itself as he rises to new life, the firstborn of the new creation. Now, a good chunk of the, the Jewish people believe that the resurrection would happen at the very end of time. So when Jesus is raised from the dead, suddenly the end of the story is breaking into the middle of the story. The new creation is being dawned. Like, this is mind-blowing. So our story is, is Christ-centered, and it's cross-centered. That's level two. Here's level three. Jesus says, if you want to be part of this kingdom project, redeeming and restoring all things, you need to become like me. You need to follow after me. We said this in the Acts series, um, that before the church was ever known as the church, the ecclesia, um, they were known as people of the way, because they followed the way of Jesus. So, So what is the way of Jesus? Well, here's three words that come to mind as we look at this story, compassionate, courageous, and creative. Um, this series, Imago Day, being made in the image of God, these are the three terms we're going to look at. What does, it be, what does it mean to be made in the image of a compassionate God, in the image of a courageous God, in the image of a creative God? Um, so let's look at compassion very briefly. From the Latin word, it's a compound word, two words have been shoved together. Com, meaning with, passion, meaning to suffer. When you're compassionate, it basically means you suffer with those around you. You don't stand at a safe distance you know, from the, the security of your bedroom and like a campaign on Facebook. I was involved in that. I felt great. Ooh, I felt great. I was part of it. A critical part of the process. No, you, you actually become friends with the poor. It's one of the most beautiful descriptions of Jesus. He was friends with the poor, a friend of sinners. He actually experienced their pain. 
Their pain moved him to action. That's when you know you're a compassionate person. When you're close enough to the vulnerable that their pain becomes your pain, you're wedded to the well-being of those around you. And we want to become a church marked out by compassion. Number two, we want to be a courageous church, proclaiming the message of the cross um, and the good news of this story. Um, Paul, when he talks about the gospel, this message of Christ crucified, right, which is a foolish message, was then and is now. But he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So, so I'm not ashamed, even though people are saying this is foolish, this idea of a crucified um, king ruling world, this is nonsense. Paul says, I, I don't really care. Like, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God. So the very epicenter of the power of God is found and demonstrated at the cross. So we can't afford to extract the cross from the story and begin to proclaim essentially a sanctified form of humanism. You know, God will help you be the best version of you. If you want to be the best you, then just be friends with Jesus. No, essentially, there is, there is a message of how you experience salvation. It's because of what God has done for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So we need to proudly proclaim the cross of Christ crucified. That's where the power is. The power isn't in your good deeds, although they're important. The power isn't in digging a well in Africa, although that's really important, but that's not the epicenter of the power. The power isn't really in your holiness, although that's important. The power is in the cross. We need to proclaim the cross. So we're a compassionate church. We're a courageous church. Um, And finally, we want to become like Jesus. We want to be resurrection-focused, a church of incredible creativity, ministers of the new creation. Here's a mind-blowing truth. The Spirit of God that raised Christ Jesus from the grave is coursing through your veins right now. The spirit that hovered over the waters at the very beginning, the same spirit that hovered over Jesus as he began his ministry of recreation, that spirit is coursing through your veins right now. How amazing is that? Like we were made in the image of a creator and God. Creativity is part of our wiring. Um, so if you were to summarize it, like what is the heartbeat of KXC, the theological vision that sits underneath all of this, it would be that we want to alleviate suffering, compassion. We want to proudly proclaim the gospel, courageous living, to live it out, but to speak it out with our words. And we want to be ministers of the new creation. We want to engage in cultural renewal, um, transforming culture, establishing God's kingdom, colonies of heaven all around us. And the way we're going to do that is through discipleship. These are the three things that we're going after, alleviating suffering, proclaiming the gospel, renewing the culture, and we're going to do that by becoming like Jesus in a process of discipleship. That's the theological vision, by the way. Does that excite you? It massively excites me. Um, So I want to look um, this afternoon at what does it mean to be a creative community engaging in this vision of cultural renewal. I find it really fascinating that right now everyone's obsessed about culture. Like everyone's talking about culture um, with real excitement and, and we're, we're constantly processing Brexit. Have you heard the latest news? Have you heard what this politician has said? Um, and and we're, we're like obsessed with Brexit and we're obsessed with what's happening across the pond with, with Trump and all that's going on there. Um, and we're interested in what's happening with the alt-right movement and new voices like Jordan Peterson and we're reading his work and it's creating a lot of discussion. And we're obsessed about the progressive left and what's happening with Corbyn and, and the impact he's having on the Labour Party and what's happening with the exhausted majority in between. Everyone's talking about culture. 
I honestly can't remember a time like it where just everyone was tuned in, just like fascinated with what's happening all around us. That's outside of the church, but when you tune into what's happening inside of the church, it shouldn't surprise us that everyone's talking about culture. Um, Perhaps one of the most popular um, podcasts is this one, This Cultural Moment. Um, Two friends of KXC, John Mark Comer and Mark Sayers, um, Bridgetown Church and Red Church, two churches that had a huge impact on us as a community. Um, They started recording some of their conversations about culture and the opportunities that are presented to the church. Just put your hand in the air if you've been listening into this cultural moment. So a number of you have. Like People are talking about culture. This is such an exciting time. like genuinely, I believe this in the, in the very depths of my being, that the great hope for this country isn't a great Brexit deal. It's the church being set on fire. That is the great hope for this nation, the church coming alive, empowered by the Spirit of God, creating colonies of heaven. Like whatever happens with Brexit, if the church comes alive, if the church is on fire, that's really good news for this nation. So I'm interested, people are talking about culture. I'm also interested that, that all over the place, Pretty much on every continent, people are beginning to talk about revival, like a movement of the spirit. Um, books are being written. I, I want you to observe some of the songs that are being recorded as we speak, whether it be Bethel, Hillsong, Worship Central, Upper Room, everyone's singing about revival. Prophets are talking about revival. Festivals like this one that we're a part of, talking about revival. So there's an obsession with culture. There's this prayer and longing for revival, and this is what we've been saying for a while now. The deep desire of our church is we want to see the church on fire and the city alive. A revival in the church so that we can see an awakening in the city. Now, we're beginning to see this kind of stirring in the church. What is it going to mean for London? I think it means the church fully engaged in culture, not partially engaged, like all in, all in, like seed interacting with the soil, in the mud, like yeast interacting with the dough, not on a shelf, you know, really set apart, no, in the dough, like soul engaging with the mess so it can act as a disinfectant. This is the moment we find ourselves in. How? How are we going to be this creative force for the kingdom of God at work in this city? I want to share um, from one key text. If you've got a Bible, you might want to turn to Exodus chapter 3, which is a story of recreation. We're going to look at a conversation Moses has with God at the burning bush. Um, But I want you to know that this is a story of recreation. You can do this when you get home. And this is going to be really helpful if you read Hebrew. But if you don't, I I don't, by the way. Um, But I know people that do, and they've told me. But if if you read Genesis 1, side by side with Exodus 14, you you can see the parallel in the English, but it's really full on in, in, in the Hebrew. You'll notice parallel in language. So... In Exodus chapter 14, which is when they part the waters and walk through the the Red Sea, when God parts the waters, um, you'll notice that there's a a pillar, a cloud. Um, And what the cloud does, it moves to the front and brings light to the front of the Jewish community as they stand on the banks of the Red Sea. But the cloud also moves to the back and brings darkness behind them so the Egyptian army can't see them and can't find them. In other words, there's a separation between light and darkness. Light at the front, darkness at the back. If you read Genesis chapter 1, you'll notice the language of separation of light and darkness. If you read the language of Exodus 14 as the waters part, it says the waters part to reveal dry land. That language is lifted exactly from Genesis 1 when God separates the water to reveal dry land. And there's land and there's 
ocean. Like this language is being used by the author to make a really simple point. That's what's happening at the Exodus is recreation. God restoring things to how they were meant to be. The Jewish community have been oppressed for 400 years, beaten, abused, neglected. That's not what they were made for. So God is putting things right. He's restoring things to how they were in the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. So this is a story of recreation. Um, but the encounter at the, at the burning bush, which happens just before the kind of like the Red Sea all begins to kick off, um, I would say one lens through which to look at this, and this is the lens we're looking through today, is a conversation about creativity, how we can renew culture. That's the lens we're going to choose to look through um, this afternoon. So there's three questions that Moses has to face in this conversation with God. Where do you stand? Where is your land? What's in your hand? Question number one then, where do you stand? God essentially says to Moses in verse four of chapter three, the ground on which you are standing is holy ground. Take off your shoes. This is like holy ground. Now, you need to know, like, the story of Moses getting to this point. He gets to the burning bush in a place of brokenness, utter brokenness, right? In fact, a few verses before this, the back end of chapter 2, he names his son Gershom. Um, The name Gershom literally means, I'm a foreigner trapped in a foreign land. In other words, he's in agony. Some commentators would basically say he's depressed or oppressed. He's not in a good way. Like, I'm a foreigner in a foreign land, and I want to get home. So when he meets God, and God says, like, this is holy ground. Let's mark this moment. Essentially, how you're doing, how are you doing? The answer for Moses, I'm not doing well. Not doing well. He has to own his disappointments. Um, A few years ago, I became absolutely fascinated with creativity. So I thought what I'd do is I'd like binge some TED Talks um, from their website. Because if you look at TED Talks, a lot of them are on the subject of creativity because it's a high value for TED. Um, And there was a common strand in all of these like short talks on creativity. And and the common strand was this. If you want to grow in creativity, you've got to get in touch with your pain. That essentially artists are in touch with their inner life. The disappointments, the frustrations, the hurts, the agony. Um, and those disappointments become raw materials they use to create. It, it forms a message that they sing. A message that they write about. They express it through art. Like we've got to be attentive to our pain. This is what's happening in Exodus chapter 3. God says like this land is, is holy land. Essentially I want to meet you in that place of disappointment. You, you called your child Gershom. Like, you're in a bad way. Let's just, let's just name this moment. And what, what interests me is that the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, had spent 400 years in slavery, right? Beaten and oppressed. Um, and Moses had spent 40 years in the wilderness. In other words, 10% of their experience had become his experience. And it was enough to create agony and pain. Um, And God basically says, let's go there. Let's have a conversation because I'm going to send you to those that are really hurting because you're going to be and bring a message of liberation. We went away with our staff team um, earlier this week and there was about 30 of us and we had the most amazing time. Um, But there was this one morning where I essentially unpacked a little bit of this from Exodus chapter 3. And I said that I felt like God was saying to us as a team but to us as a church that he's hidden his word in our hearts. 
He's hidden his word in our hearts. Some of his calling, some of his message for this new season, it's hidden in our hearts. Um, And we needed to actually name some of the disappointments because in the disappointments, we're going to hear the voice of God and begin to discern calling and a message for the season. So I said, look, could people be really brave? And before we talk about our dreams and desires, where is it hurting? Um, And we went round the room um, and it was one of the most beautiful hours of my life. Listening to people, often sobbing their way through, kind of trying to share their disappointments. There was snot, there was tears, there was lots of tissues involved. Um, But it was a holy moment. It felt like sacred space. Because people weren't just sharing ideas that they were kind of like separate from. They were sharing the essence of their being. They were sharing their hearts, right? Um, But hidden in that, you could begin to discern calling. As people were saying, this breaks my heart. And so like, Oh my goodness, like maybe there's a message stirring. Maybe there's a ministry stirring. Maybe that you're experiencing 10% of what the culture around you is experiencing so that you can be a messenger of good news to the surrounding culture. Absolutely beautiful. So I want to ask us as a church family, like where do you stand right now? How are you really doing? Where does it hurt? Are you willing to own your disappointments? Because this is the story of of the Exodus narrative, that as Moses begins to experience healing and redemption, he becomes an agent of healing and redemption. So where do you stand? Question number one. Question number two, where is your land? Um, God says, I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, here's the thing that's, that I think is amazing about this passage is that God basically says, okay, here's the dream. I'm going to send you back to Pharaoh, and you're going to say to Pharaoh, you're going to set the people of Israel free so they can worship me in their own land. Now, this longing of liberation was already in the very heart of Moses, right? So if you know the backstory, story, um, he killed an Egyptian slave driver. When he was living in Egypt, he saw a slave driver beating a Hebrew slave. The injustice, the anger rose up. He stepped in and he killed someone. Now, you only kill someone in that kind of experience if you really believe in the cause, right? He really believed in justice and the liberation of his people. So he had this longing, this desire for liberation and deliverance. What he did with the desire was completely dysfunctional. He murdered someone. And in this this encounter, God's essentially saying, look, the desire was right. The desire was from me. What you did with it was totally wrong. But now let's put it right. I'm empowering you to go to Pharaoh and to achieve the very thing that was in your heart all along, the liberation of a nation so they could taste freedom. Don't you love that? Like, I believe hidden in your heart are desires. And they've been put there by God. And as you just partner with the Spirit to go digging, you're going to find some desires. And maybe there you're going to find a sense of calling, an adventure for your life. Some of the stuff that God's saying, yes, that's the thing. I want to partner with you in bringing renewal to the culture. So essentially the question is, are you listening to your desires? I love the Psalm, Psalm 37. Um, Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. That's amazing. Not delight yourself in the the Lord and he'll give you the desires of his heart. He's basically saying, no, no, I've hidden my desires in your heart. They will become your desires. Go digging with the spirit. I've hidden them in your heart. Like what's the dream stirring within? 
Third question, what's in your hand? Then the Lord said to Moses, what's in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Um, in other words, what's in your hand? Some of us look at like the gifts, the resources, um, the talents that are in our hand right now. And when we know what the idea is, the vision is, the calling is, we look at the resource and we're like, it's not enough. This is never enough to achieve this stuff that God's put in my heart. And I want you to know you're entirely right. You're entirely right. It's not enough. But when you surrender those gifts and you place them into the hands of God, they are more than enough. More than enough, right? When you lay them down and say, God, they're yours. And if you read the story of the Exodus narrative, you'll be surprised how often the staff appears. It has a pretty key role. Um, like at the Red Sea, Moses raises his stuff, very good, over the waters and the waters part. <clears throat> when they're in the wilderness and they're thirsty, Moses whacks a rock with his, well done, um, and water begins to flow. When he's in the presence of Pharaoh, he lays down the, very good, always going to be stuff, um, and it becomes this snake. And, and suddenly, God is beginning to move through this instrument, which was just the tool of the trade for a shepherd. That's all he has. God says, I want you to go to Pharaoh. He's like, well, what have I got in my hand? Oh, a staff. You know, what am I going to do with a staff? And God says, well, lay it down. Because in your hands, it doesn't feel like much. In my hands, it's more than enough. You need a fresh mindset when it comes to looking at your gifts, your talents, your resources. You've got to move away from the victim mindset. It's not enough. God could never do anything with that. He could. He really could. He liberated a nation with a staff. I, he can do remarkable things with your gifts. What is in your hand? Are you willing to lay it down? Surrender your gifts. Wouldn't it be amazing if we as a church, everyone that's part of this family, KXE, we were asking these three questions, basically saying, God, would you stir up calling? Would you stir up creativity? Would you stir up faith that you might release us into every sphere of culture within this city to be agents of renewal and redemption? You know, you've got access all areas. So we're going to ask the questions like, where do we stand? We're going to own our disappointments. We're going to ask the question, where is our land? What are the deep desires and longings? What's in our hand? What are the gifts? However insufficient they feel, God's power is made perfect in weakness. And then as we go into every sphere, into education, the social sector, arts and entertainment, media, business, government, like the church is beautifully positioned to transform culture. All these sectors gather in church buildings to worship the king. They gather in homes to sort of intentionally go on a journey of becoming like Jesus. And then they go out. And it might look tiny, like a mustard seed. But when you put the mustard seed into the soil, it's going to bear incredible fruit. It might look like yeast. Like, that's nothing. Put it into the dough and see what happens. It might feel like a tiny bit of salt. Throw it onto something unclean. It will act as a disinfectant. We could be agents of renewal and transformation in culture. It starts with a tiny amount, and we offer it all to God. So here's some really good news. Um, you are hardwired for creativity. Now, I know some of you, because of the way we talk about creatives, you know, designers and musicians um, and creative industries, we, we distance ourselves from the language of, of being a creative. But I just want you to know that you are a creative. Um, so here's some really good news. You were made in the image of a creator God. You were made in the image of an artist 
therefore you are creative. It's in the DNA. Um, Picasso, who was fairly weird, um, but he said this, we are all born as artists, the challenge is to remain an artist. I believe that, I think he's right. We were made in the image and likeness of God. We might have discipled people, educated people out of creativity, but your wiring is as a creative, right? You're made in the image of a creator God. Secondly, the mission of Jesus that we've been invited into is a mission to recreate the world, restore and redeem the world. He said, I want you in on this project. And thirdly, the spirit of creation, the the spirit that was hovering over the waters at the beginning, that was hovering over Jesus at his baptism, that spirit, the spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the grave, is at work in you, coursing through your veins. We are hardwired for creativity, right? We are hardwired for creativity. We might need to find that default setting, like refresh, because your refresh setting is to be a creative. Here's some bad news. Um, that creativity has obstacles. And, and for the sake of the world, for the sake of the mission of the church, we need to take these obstacles seriously. Okay? Let me just name three quickly. Number one, busyness. Oh, I hope they're all right. Um, <laughs> here's my encouragement. Slow down. Slow down. If you want to grow in creativity, you have to slow down. Um, Jesus said it really well, John 15. He says, if you want to bear much fruit, here's the key. You need to remain in the vine. Abide. It means just be. Don't do anything. If you want to be productive, and we idolize productivity in a city like this. If you want to be productive, Jesus says, okay, be really unproductive in the presence of God. That's the pathway to creativity, right? Um, and some of us are like, no, productive, productive, productive. And he's like, ah, no, 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 if you want to be productive, unproductive in the presence of God, abide. Now, neuroscientists are saying the same thing. They didn't listen to Jesus, but they've discovered the same thing through science, that essentially you're at your creative best when you're resting. So here's three common brain waves that we experience. At the top are the beta waves. Now, when you're at work, firing off emails, in conversations, doing the stuff that you do, your beta waves are going really fast. And because we live in a city like London, we don't have time for lunch, really. They're just always firing. And on the way home, you're checking your emails, and you're getting messages, and you get home and you're like, okay, let me just check again because I'm an addict. Um, I'm going to check some more emails. And you're always thinking, beta waves, beta waves. They're firing all the time. And then you crash and you go to bed. And the theta waves begin to kick in, which is basically when you're beginning to to drift off and and you move into sort of like a dream phase. Um, The neuroscientists are saying that in between the beta waves and the theta waves are the alpha waves. And the alpha waves are the gateway to greater creativity. You are at your creative best when you go for a walk. Not with an agenda, just to take in beauty. You are at your creative best when you go for a coffee. Not to crack on with some emails, but just to enjoy good coffee and to read a novel. And you're at your best when you're just having a glass of wine with your friends. And when you're not thinking about that thing that you want to be thinking about, often creative ideas will begin to flow. This is what Jesus was saying all along. If you want to be productive, rest. This is why his rhythm of Sabbath and then work was because that's the pathway to huge creativity. And his ministry was a ministry of recreation, right? That's why he's often found on a mountainside. What a waste of time. Unless you actually thought that if you've got three years to change the world, then you better be really unproductive in the presence of God because that's the pathway to creativity. Like That's why he spent his time fishing. Have you ever been fishing? A massive waste of your time. That, that essentially you throw in the line, and you're like, 
is anything going to happen now? I've only been a couple of times. It was like, when's like a fish going to bite on the flipping bait? Like, this is a waste of time. And yet when you actually lean into that, creativity begins to flow. Here's my encouragement. Slow down. For the sake of the world. Ooh, almost fell. Well, I did fall off. For the sake of culture. <laughs> slow down. Very good. Ooh, getting excited. Obstacle number two, self-obsession. Self-obsession. Here's the encouragement. Turn outwards. Sinfulness stifles creativity. When everything's about you, the narcissistic mindset doesn't release and stir up creativity. So I'll tell you why. Um, because essentially, most of us um, are managing our reputation. We're curating our reputation online and on social media. We're terrified of what people think. So we put up you know, shots on Instagram. Here's me having like, an amazing time with my friends. And here's me in the summer of 2020, you know, 2017 when I looked smoking hot. And, and here's me speaking in front of a crowd of people because I'm that important. And here's me. And, and we begin to sort of curate like, what people are, are going to see of us and what they're going to think of us. And we idolize fame and success and our reputation. If you idolize success, do you know what the greatest fear will be? Failure. Failure. The greatest fear will be failure. And when you're crippled by failure, you're not going to take risks. You're not going to create something because you'll be terrified that what you create um, will fail. It stifles creativity. For the songwriters, you'll know this. For every great song you write, there's probably a hundred lousy ones that nobody ever hears. For every poem that gets written, for every piece of art, there's probably 50 plus attempts that never get seen. Right, Because you've got to overcome the fear of failure if you're going to take a leap of faith and start creating something for the world around. Here's the antidote to the, to the fear of failure. It's love. Perfect love drives out fear, the fear of failure. When you realize you're loved by the Father and you tune into that voice, you become reckless because you don't care what the crowds think anymore. You're just going to try things, do things. We need to overcome self-obsession. Finally, we need to overcome apathy. And here's my encouragement. It's time to wake up as the church. It's time to wake up for the sake of the world. Um, we live in a culture that, that we just spend so much time numbing ourselves because we don't know what to do with the pain. So we take it to Netflix, we take it to drink, um, we take it to more work, we find basically something that will help numb the pain. Here's what happens when you numb the pain, you will not be in touch with your disappointments, right? And essentially if all the creative learning of this kind of like few decades would be that actually in the disappointments there's unbelievable creativity. When you bring those disappointments to the creator and the redeemer God, what's he going to do with it? He's going to restore and redeem it for the sake of the world, right? Um, we've got to overcome numbness, got to wake up. If you're numb, I'll tell you what else you're not going to feel or be in touch with, and that's your desires. Because you can't choose which parts of your heart you numb. You numb it all. You numb the disappointments and you numb the desires. He has hidden desires in your heart for you and for the sake of the world. It is time to wake up. Um, and then we get sent into every sector of society to be agents of transformation. This is so, so exciting. So here's my encouragement. Number one, slow down for the sake of the world. Number two, turn outwards. Like sinfulness stifles creativity. Turning in yourself stifles creativity. Um, number three, wake up. It's time to own the disappointments. It's time to listen to the desires. It's time 
to choose faith and to believe that God can do remarkable things with the little that is in our hands. When we surrender it to him, his kingdom comes. Why don't we stand?